Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theater about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Award-winning British actress Anna Friel burst onto our screens with her portrayal of Beth Jordash in Channel 4's hard-hitting soap Brookside. Despite initial nervousness about leaving the show, she has subsequently starred in challenging TV, film and theatre roles, not just here in the UK, but also in the US. Since 2016, Anna has played the title role in the British Nordic Noir detective series Marcella. In 2017, she won the International Emmy Award for Best Actress for her performance. I caught up with her earlier this year, ahead of the launch of the third season, to talk about the challenges of playing the character. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? My guest this week is the wonderful Anna Friel and we'll be talking about Marcella from uh, the wonderful show Marcella. So I just wanted to talk to you about, because is it true that when uh, Hans Rosenfeld sort of approached you to to play the role, you thought, I don't know whether I want to do this. Did you pull out or something? Um, I think it was about six weeks um, before we're about to start. I just, I was with my director and I had a few wobbles and said, um, I don't know what I can offer differently. There's too many people who have done it so well. And I think you might have the wrong person. And uh, he completely disagreed and said, just stick with me for a little bit and let's work through it. And he said, I think we should make her a rock and roll kind of cop. And that kind of caught my attention. <laughs> he said, give her a funny walk. And, uh, She's a bit androgynous. And he said, and let's just take your attitude of life to her attitude to work. So um, he he convinced me. I think it's just like with any job, when you start, you have nerves. And it's the older I've got, the more I've realised the more prep you do, the better you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And um, I was worried if I didn't have enough enough time to prep, but I did. And I worked really hard. And as soon as day, um, day one of shoot came, I, I, I felt ready. Also, there is that thing of how do I make this difference, isn't there? You know, I mean, and you've really achieved that. But you know, we see cop shows a lot, but there's something, I mean, obviously there's some sort of Scandi drama they talk about, Scandi noir but, noir, but you've really brought something different to it. Where was your starting point about making her different? Um, well, it was written in Swedish, so that it is real, this Scandi noir. It's the first time that was done, and but certainly in setting it in London and then translating it to English language. Um, 
and it, it, the, so the writing makes it different just to start with. Um, and he said, I'm not quite sh- sure who she is, but you'll, you, that's, that's your job, Anna. And um, you've got room to breathe. And it was a, a lot about how she moved, how she walked, um, uh, that, her, the fact that she wears a parka. There's a little bit, um, a little bit of oasis going on there, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then the way she dressed, she'd just been left by a man. So sexuality and openness wasn't... Um, wasn't really on the agenda, but it was to give her a key look and a style um, that was unique to her without it being overtly sexual. And that was also, again, about her, her movement and not ever using her feminine qualities to get what what, her, what she wanted. It was the opposite of that, but yet still giving her some kind of cool. She was a mum, or she is a mum. And she is a mum, Yeah. yeah. And she'd been out of the profession for a while, hadn't she? That was what I found in the first season really interesting was she was somebody going back into a job that she hadn't been into for a while. Yeah, I think she got bored of being the housewife. I think she was convinced into being that. And then without realising it, she was quite emotionally bullied at home and felt like she was worthless. So I think the chance to go back um, was very exciting for her. We're going back five years uh, now. I know, and that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about, the difference between going through the seasons. But, you know, you've you've really laid the groundwork for this character that you spent a long time with. So where does your research start with a character? Do you go and meet coppers? Do you go and try and find her in the outside world? Um, At the beginning, most of it was about spending time with the creator, Nicola Larder um, and and Hans and trying to get into their heads, which is always the best thing is to get into the head of the writer. And then we had um, a really really cool director who loves his music and he wanted to create create um, a sound theme for her. So I work a lot. I don't know about you, but I work a lot with music. I find it helps me concentrate and focus um, and and set the tone for everybody else around. Often we'll have music playing on set. But first of all, with Charles Martin, it was like, let's give her what, what, what does she listen to? Uh, and rather than doing big, big, big backstories, there was enough backstory there. It was just, let's get on with the job. And I met, I went to the police station for about four or five days and saw, uh, I'm, I'm a, a stickler for wanting to get things right. <laughs> but um, unfortunately with drama, you have to push the boundaries a little bit to, to make it indeed dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um and I was quite shocked at the police station. There was literally the, 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 these poor guys who worked so hard <laughs> getting their lunchbox out, and they were all so tightly sealed. And they said, "Because there's so many, there's so many mice and rats in the building." Yeah. And so incredibly unglamorous it was, um, and incredibly how incredibly dedicated they are. And I thought it was it was quite a responsibility on my shoulders to represent them in the truest and best way I could without sounding over earnest. But was there one specific person who you sort of latched onto at all or was it an amalgam of different sort of information coming at you? Uh, they wanted me to meet various people. Um, the, the, there was a, an advisor that took us all the way through and helped and worked with hands to make sure that it was correct. But I remember um, being at the Groucho Club, for those of you who don't know that, it's a, a members club in, in London and you have to be a creative to be a member. Um and there, there was a woman who came uh, to meet me and I swear if you'd have looked at the table, you'd have thought that she was the actress. She was so glamorous with long, blowing blonde hair and bright red lips and 
I kind of just come off set looking much like I do now with my hair tied back and a sweatshirt. <laughs> um, but wow, gosh, that's not what I expected. And she said, why not? And she said, um, I, I, I actually had the most case, successful cases last year compared to all the men. So I think she embodied me with confidence and saying, but if you're slight and small, how can anyone find you um, the right level of intimidating? Um, and, and she was a really brilliant help. She told me how, how being a woman in the profession uh, actually benefited her and, and also the trials and tribulations that she came across early on in her career until she was taken seriously. So she, she, was, she was a big confidence boost for me. But I walked away still saying, I still don't want to wear red lipstick or have long, long flowing hair. But physically, there's a lot of, I mean, God, you go through it, don't you? And, and the whole three seasons, you really, you put yourself out there. And I was just wondering about how you, in a long TV show, mm-hmm. how you protect yourself, just your energy, because also, you know, you... Yeah, you're, you're, I'm having to come home and not be a schizophrenic. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, all those things. How do you, do you have a routine about that or, or do yeah. you just go for it? Uh, no, I, I'm very specific. I think as I've got older, that's, again, not to go but all about prep and you try and get in the, in the best physical shape you can just because you know the toll it's going to take on your body when you're doing 15 hours a day and for five and a half months. I also, um, we, I live in Windsor, so it was a, I spent four hours a day in the car Damn for damn government, damn loads of times. Um, but that, so that was my, my prep time in the car with music and having my coffee and waking up and going over my lines. And then on the way back, it was learning the lines for the next day so that I'd be, have a bit of time when I got home with Gracie. But um, I, they all, nobody shied away. Nicola, uh, Charles, the director, Anne Hams was, we, we need you to go there. And they also start they, they gave such intrigue and I don't know if this has done before but they didn't tell any of us and they wouldn't show us the the last three scripts um of who actually was the killer um so there was almost a, a really intriguing and interesting paranoia in the green room and we all hang together because we're going so is it me I was convinced it was my channel so I, I played I played it um I played it as if she was completely guilty and I hoped it was going to be her was <laughs> going to be the anti-hero and swear to God, I didn't know until we read the, the, the second to last episode and was like, ah, oh, okay. But also that's in that first season, I think that is something that's really different is that she has these blackout episodes. She's slightly out of control. She doesn't know. She's emotionally very out of control. Yeah. And can I just ask you about specifically those scenes where you, on a day yeah. where you, where you have to lose it. You yeah. Know. Um, the, the, it's called associated fugue attacks, and I'd never heard about that before. And um, I can't say who it was, but there was someone very close involved that had actually suffered from fugues themselves. So I had a, a direct contact and understanding of what that was. And she said, just imagine the worst ever hangover that you've got, and you can't remember what happened the night before and you pick your phone up going, oh my God, who did I text? What was I so She said, take that and times it by 50 and you're somewhere close to what a fugue is. And then explain to me about how many um, criminals uh, or people in jail there are that have actually committed crimes whilst they're having a fugue and have no recollection of it. Um, again, it was all about complete and utter focus um, f- for those scenes. It was 
I had to go to the dark place. I, I, I didn't smile very much in five and a half months without sounding woe me. It was so hard. It's my job that I love, but um, it's it, as soon as the concentration goes, it's not there. So I spent a lot of my time not smiling and being in a corner. I remember if it helps explain better uh, in season two, where we because we shoot a lot under the on the underpass uh, in in Earl's Court, and uh, it was a really beautiful, happy day, and the sky was blue, and I was kind of skipping. Going, I, I've got this. It's season two. I know what I'm doing. I can get into that world. And I go onto the underpass and we, and I normally take about an average one or one to three takes. And uh, he pulled me aside, uh, the director, Jonathan, and just said, Hannah, what's going on? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, where is she? That She's not here, as in Marcella. Um, and I said, I don't, I don't know, is she not? He said, nope. He said, you're too happy. And then he said, go, go in the corner. Oh, and I did, and I put my headphones in, and I listened to. I think I listened to a lot of Hans Zimmer through that, and uh, thought my dark thoughts. Which it, now not so much, but it was always about my father. I'd always um, think about loss, and or um, I used to carry a green book with me everywhere. Actually, and I think that was season one that David Grace's daddy had written to me, and um, I think it took me many years to realise the gravitas of that, that I, could, I could pick it up and the importance of any single page. And if I needed to feel sadness and cry immediately, or I needed to miss or long, um, I'd be able to go to any page of that book. And I carried around like a, like a Bible and it was just immediate. Um, I've stopped doing that and I've stopped thinking morbid thoughts about my father as, as he's got older, I have to use different tools. And I think, yeah, it might look like you've not got over a relationship if you saw walking around with a green book, but no one knew what it was. I'm just telling you, you've worked with him. You'll know that you're a really phenomenal writer. And um, it's it's all about triggers, isn't it? There's things that can, that, and, and, and focus and nothing else can, can get in. And you do, to a certain degree, become her for the day, but not, you know, as long as you can remember when you get home, you leave it at work. Otherwise, I would basically traumatise my child, which I have no intention of doing. Yeah, I mean, I use music a lot. I mean, I use, I'll do a playlist for, I'll do two playlists. One, I'll do a playlist for mood music, which, you know, will get me in and out of where I need to be. But I also do a playlist of the characters' music, who I think the music that they would like to listen to, which is sometimes quite different to mine. I, I do exactly the same. Can we work together again soon? <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I've started using photographs a lot. So I will tell and what I used to do is do a lot of writing in a book. Yeah. And now what I do is a mood book of photographs and just sort of, I can, with the music, I can just look at them and then I can get into a certain place and, and move into into the mood I need. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because sometimes the playlist for your character is so different. It wouldn't necessarily, that I'm, I'm working, I'm training now ready for my next role. Um, and I'm, the playlist is nothing that I would listen to. It's quite heavy metal and just actually annoys me. But, um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's going to be the last thing I want to listen to at 5.30 a.m. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's going to give that kind of, she's a bit erratic and tougher. And it's, it's well, I'm not working the emotional parts, but when she's got to be to um, be the strongest version of her, my playlist will be totally different. But I find classical music such as Hans Zimmer and it's, it's, they're so connected to music and, and, and drama, aren't they? And, and it just emotes any feeling you can just be wherever you need to be within two minutes. So you're not holding, you're not holding people up. 
Um, and sometimes you, uh, like you were saying before, I can use one piece of music and then suddenly it just stops working for some reason. I don't know what it is or, you know, whatever I used to use isn't working anymore. And I have to surprise myself in, in a different way to get myself into with a different piece of music or a different piece of writing or something like that. Yeah, or, or physicality. You'll have to, I'm really physical on set. It'd be a bugbearer of mine. Uh, it, sometimes I'm a little bit OCD and I can see that an actor, the director just said an action. And you know that their heart rate isn't right and they're not, they might not be flushed enough. So you'll, or I always say, just give, give me two or three minutes and I'm doing press ups or I'm jumping up and down. I'm really, really physical. And also, I, I exhaust my arms because it was pointed out to me by two ex boyfriends, actually. Um, we both happen to be actors, but particularly David, he said, why is it with you and your arms? And no one had ever pointed that out to me. It's been so simple. If I go back to some of which none of us ever want to do, go back to 18 and <laughs> even and just go, oh my God, it's so bad. Um, but my arms would look like they're flying. So I had to go do an exercise of tying and it was a way of getting energy out. And I was absolutely unaware of that. And so the only way around that I found was to just do so many press-ups as many my little body could, could carry. And um, so they were so tired, they just, they limp. And then that did something different because it would change the place of, of, of where the voice comes from and how the shoulders stand. And, and, and then I started to work out how all of those things had worked hand in hand and beautifully symbiotically. I was quite yeah. all about um, Andy Serkis and, um, theatre complicity. I'd, I'd, I'd love to have had the chance to do that and work with movement. I'm going to work with um, a movement coach just for a day for the next for the next role because I'm too much is kind of left on my shoulders right now. And I thought I just I want to. I heard um, an actress recently had worked with a movement coach. Um, have you heard the story? I don't know if it's true, but the girl who plays Princess Diana in the new series, I think she called Emma. Quite, she, she worked with a movement coach and studied a shy cat. Wow. So, which, 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 I don't know whether that's true, but I just thought that's really clever because if you're playing someone that exists, instead of doing an impersonation, you're, you're, you're studying the movement of, of what they are. So it's not, you're not then held and stuck to certain imagery. Yes, I've used I've used movement coaches in the past. Uh, Have and, you? And, yeah, and and it, sometimes it's it's things from nature. It will be animals or whatever. But uh, sometimes it's an amalgamation of different sort of energies and sort of uh, postural sort of uh, how you hold yourselves and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Is it? I can't wait for that. I think because I missed out on drama school. Um, I missed all those bits, and you have to tend to be a tortoise for five days. I was like, what, what would I have probably chosen a sloth so I could get away with as, <laughs> as possible. Um, but I've no, done that thing also where sometimes I will, just in a rehearsal or whatever, I will wear shoes which are too small for me or yes. uh, we'll do things that I'll put ankle weights on or I'll wear, a, a, you can get these like heavy vests that people use when they're working out. I will do a whole rehearsal in a vest. That's right. In a weighted vest and stuff. Because you're good. That's what they're good for me. But it's also tricks. I mean, they're tricks to get me. They're not tricks, but they're sort of methods of getting me into a different place that I need to get to. Yeah. Um, and they're really effective, I think. I do too. 
But I, you can, in a long TV show, you know, for me, sometimes I can forget and I have to remind myself. Oh, God, not um, with Marcelli. You've not got a chance to forget, believe me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because you, you're so front and centre of it, obviously, all the time. I mean, do you have going into something like season three, which is quite different, isn't it, season three? But going into it, do you have to do, before you go into it, do you have to do a, a reminder sort of little couple of weeks where you're you're getting back into her? Oh, my God. Yeah, there was there was more to it than just a few reminders. A, it had been a long time. Um, mm-hmm. Also, for the third season, we only had Hans Rosenfeld for the first two episodes, and you know how important the writing is. It's everything. And often, yeah. as actors, we're tweaking and... Oh, but it's got hands and they don't know if they understand the show. And I was executive producing on that one as well. Um, and was a little bit discombobulated thinking there's, I've got nothing that feels safe. I've got none of the cast around me. We're working in Ireland, not London. There's no police station. I'm in a blonde wig, which she's been scarred. We were shooting so out of sequence. So I had to do so many um, kind of story arcs and storyboards to remind me exactly where I was because I don't know if people who are listening know that most things are not shot in sequence. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge for any of us who do long running series um, is that say not that so episode one or season one or season two, we did in three blocks. So what episode one to three and then four, five, six, and then you, and then seven and eight. So once you finish the three, you forget about them with this, with season three, we did episodes one and two. And then the next was done as a block of five. And when you're tracking it, you've only seen the first two episodes, but if you see where it goes, it, it's quite, it, there's lots of twists and turns and to shoot, to go in on the morning and shoot episode four, scene 12. And then in the evening you're doing episode seven, scene 16. So you've either got to undo knowledge or jump forward. So you have to track all of it, which is, I think, why... We're not being demanding, but we're saying if you want the best performances out of us, um, rather than just sending us a great pilot episode one, can you send us the whole series so we can study the arc and the movement? Because very rarely do we shoot in sequence. So do you have a Bible uh, that is next to your script? Do you have like a storyboard, uh, a sort of timeline Bible? Yeah, I take a whiteboard in in my uh, trailer. I'll tell you about my trailer in a minute because it's quite funny. Especially in these times of COVID, I was like, see? I wasn't being demanding. I was ahead of the times. <laughs> Remind me to talk to you about that. It's quite funny. But anyway, in it, I have a um, a big whiteboard. And so for every day, I'll say, right, you've done that. And I'll think about erase that so don't concentrate on that because that's not happened yet. Being a true cancerian, I always I make that my cosy place. It's like my shell. I fill it with fairy lights and we'll put words of the day and um, I can make my juices. And the last season because we were so far away from any coffee shop, I bought a really good coffee machine. So my, my trailer became the coffee shop for everybody. Obviously, au uh, gratuit. <laughs> that is fantastic. But with, can I just ask you about the continuity-wise of telling a story out of order? Mm-hmm. Um, because we do get script. I mean, you know, just by the nature, we get scripts quite late sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I will have like you said before, episodes one and two, and I don't really know what's happening in the three and four. And I try to get involved with writers. Are you asking before you start on season three, do you have at least a beat sheet of what's happening in the season? Well, 
Yes and no, because you don't want to get on their nerves because unfortunately sometimes you can ask them and the answer is they don't know. Um, <laughs> and you you wish they did and they hope they did. So sometimes you can steer them and say, well, is it this? Is it moving in this direction? And sometimes they, it depends on, on an ego, um, are really happy to, to listen and, and think, okay, you've got a point that it could go in that direction. And other times uh, they say, no, it's very strict. Hands would always have a plan because of the plot of who did it. Um, and we would, me and uh, Nicola Lardo, the creator, would always say, but now we need to marcella it up. That's what we'd say. So, because they'd always say, you make such odd choices. You could just, even if it was, I'd like to order a cup of tea and a slice of Marmite toast. It wouldn't just be in, in that vein. It'd be something, I'd, I'd do a different, always make a different choice because I thought what made her intriguing was um, her, let me find the right, her unpredictability. Yeah, I love the fact that you never know where you are with her. Yeah. And I try to do that all the time. And what's the oddest thing that we could do? So in season three, they showed me this bedroom and there was a huge mansion we were working in. And they'd walk to the bed and I said, this, is, said, this doesn't feel Kira or Marcella because I was playing two characters in this. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, it's just so bland. There's no, there was a place where she's meant to have a hiding place. And you think, don't put it behind the cupboard because everyone always puts whatever they've got to find behind the cupboard. You know, it's a bit obvious. And about where she'd sleep. So I looked around the room and I said, the director thought, oh God, I think I'm crazy. I said, I don't think she'd sleep on the four-post bed. I think she'd, um, I think she'd find that quite scary. I think she'd sleep under the table. And he's like, why? I said, because it's, it's small and it's womb-like and it's where she can hide from everyone and when she can lock the door, no one can see. And that became a bit of a, um, a symbol. So it, things went from there and every day there'd be things like that. I'd, I'd walk around the house going, oh, she'd love that. And she, it's funny when you start to think about it in the, in the third person, not as yourself. And when you have, in long series, we have different directors, don't we, sometimes for each episode. Yeah. How do you, how do you cope with that? Because what do you need from a director for you to be able to create? What are you looking for for a director who's coming in, not the showrunner, but an episodic director? What are you looking for from them so that you can do what you need to do? I always miss the first and I always feel a sense of guilt when the second one comes on. And particularly if you've got on with the first one and you're their little protege and, um, and they think that they come on and say, well, how, how's the second one doing? How is it? And you go, oh, they're, they're fine. I mean, obviously I really miss you. I never, I, I never want to be disingenuous, but with the third, um, I really did um, on season three, I wouldn't say fall in love, but I, I, I admired him so much and he just, he's a French. He's, I don't know if you've ever worked with him called Gilles Beigny. Yeah, um, I thought he was great. I mean, I've only seen those two, so and I thought it was beautifully directed. Well, it's his, it's his, his ideas as well. He's shown me a lot of old kind of French, not horror, but French thrillers in the seventies and the use of the color orange. And so let's make the mansion itself a character. Mm-hmm. And, and um, we would just, you know, I think directors forget it's not that we need our, our little head stroking and our ego rubbed all the time. But just uh, if you're filled with confidence, because often we can go and say, I can't, I can't, I won't be able to, what I can't. And they just go, Anna, you can, you are Anna, it is amazing. And you then just go, okay, what more do you want? I'll give you everything. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he did that. But then the next one, Ashley, um, I'd suggested I'd work with him um, broken on Jimmy McGovern's Broken. Oh, which was fantastic. Thank you. And I thought Ashley was great and they couldn't, they didn't, 
uh, know which director. And I, I really fought for him because he's also a great writer. He works with music and we get on very well because it's nice to have just it's that familiarity because so much work goes into getting to know someone and for them to get to know you. And I think when you're younger, there's more of a pleasure and an excitement in that, much like when you go off um, to shoot on location. It's like, yeah, which country am I going to discover? But now at this age, you think, oh, another really lonely, cold hotel where I'm just going to go back on my own and miss my family and no one's going to hug me without sounding too negative, not talking myself out of jobs. But um, it does, it gets, think things change, your values change very, very much, don't they, when you, you get older? They do, but also I think we're able to ask for things that we know we're going to need down the line. As a younger actor, I didn't know I was going to need something, you know, in a month's time. I didn't, I just was blindly walking into the job and I've, I've got to know myself better and how I work better. So, and I'm not shy of, of saying to someone, look, I know it sounds crazy to you, but I'm really going to need this, uh, this type of place to live. I'm going to need this type of place to be. I'm, I'm going to need, so if you You've got to ask for those things, haven't you? Yeah, but you still feel like, are you allowed to say asshole? Yes, we can say asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough, that's been said a lot on this podcast. Sort of. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I'm going to say, you do feel like an asshole still asking for those things. And it's like, look, I'm not because I'm needy or I'm really demanding and I don't need pink or blue M&Ms specifically. Just feed me. Can I have something that's healthy just to keep the energy levels up? And then that you understand that as you... That, the set meals sometimes the stodge is really comforting, but if they want you to be looking good. That you, you have to be fed, and if you've worked a lot in America, I'll come around with little juice shots and yeah. things that keep the, the a crew going and the and the, the, the vital vitamins that we need for the day. So now I just kind of bring my own pat lunches and my own shakes in the morning and monitor that as I go. But you're right, so just somewhere nice to go at the end of a of a day that feels a little bit homey or comforting. Also, you can have your family to come and visit you. So for me, Gracie um, has always lived with me. And until, so I was in England for only four weeks last year and she came with me on, she moved school for Marcella. She went to um, an all girls school called Strathern. We're there for five months. And when we got back, we went to Madison, Georgia because that fell over the summer holidays. And then I left her to go and do a job in Nova Scotia. And she, when we got back, she'd said, Mama, did you realise that was the last trip? I can't do it anymore. And she's because she's doing the international baccalaureate, and she, she just can't afford to miss the, the time and the, the curriculum. And she also wants to be with her friends. And I think mm. it's been great for her up until now to know how nomadic life is and to get used to change and learn about all these different countries. But I'm the next job I'm going to. I'm like. Without Gracie, and that would always, and that would always, I know that sounds like a needy mommy, but it would just be such a grounding thing that you finish a day's work and I get home and could just go and wrap my arms around her or her around me. That means everything, doesn't it? It's very important. It's very, and it's a, it's a really difficult balance to strike, but it's, and it's the balance that we strike, and it's the, it's one of the problems of success, but I mean, it is a, it's, it's no less a problem, you know. And it's so hard for relationships. I always, I, I. Who did I used to always think about? I used to think about Tim Robbins and um, Susan Sarandon. So, and all that. Yeah, thinking they're the couples. You look, they they did it. If they can do it, we we can do it. And and even they broke up. And I and, I, and you look at the history of it. Of actors, actors seem to only meet actresses, and and vice versa. Yeah. And, and 
it's the time apart. I remember David and I having six months and we didn't see each other. And you, you, your look often changes and you think, who, who are you? And, yeah. and I remember with Reese and I putting it in our contracts that we, we weren't allowed to have more than two or three weeks apart at any given time because it's just unsustainable. And you're so driven by your work. You realize, particularly with this lockdown for me, it's the first time I've ever, ever stopped for this long. And and may, and really really resetting and reevaluating what's been my driving force. How much have I, have I given as much to my relationship as I have my work? I know I have with my child because she's always been there, and they do need work and time just as much as your job does. Yeah, lockdown's been really interesting for me because I've I've not been well. I have been working on and off, but. Um, I've not felt guilty about not doing anything because I know I'm not taking that personally. I know that nobody else is not working. It's not that my agent isn't working for me or the, the phone's not ringing for me. It's not ringing for anybody. So it's sort of, it's given me this sort of sense. I've relaxed a little bit more than I usually do. Yeah, I think, I think me too. Maybe on the second one, I've started getting a little bit itchy feet and going, oh God, it's Groundhog Day. It's the same, it's the same. But you know how many people are suffering so much more. So this, every morning I started to meditate. I've had, I've never had therapy in my life um, until about eight weeks ago for the very, very first time. And she, she couldn't believe it. She went, you're a child actress and it's the first time you've had therapy at 44 years old. Yep. And what's made you come? I, like, I think I'm thinking too much. I'm overthinking everything. She said, well, maybe uh. you're always on the go. You're just constantly moving. And, and it, it is. And I think I was scared to stop. And I also think I wasn't really dealing with things. I'd be subconsciously pushing them somewhere and letting them come up ready for the next character. I'm thinking you have to be in a certain mindset, otherwise I won't be able to do it. Mm. I think, well, come on, Anna, after 30 years, if you haven't learned your craft, there's something quite wrong. Um, it's more about balance and shifts. And, but it um, is trust. I mean, it is true. I mean, I, you know, I there's no... It's no accident that I'm in an insecure profession because there's something about its insecurity that I sort of like. Because well, it's all, because we are insecure. Yeah, but also <laughs> yeah. I like the fact that, you know, next week someone might give me a call and I might be over the other side of the world. I like the fact that, you know, there was one time when I knew what I was doing for the next two and a half years and I didn't like it. And everybody else was like, that must be great to know what you're going to be doing for the next two and a half. And I was like, you know what? I don't really like it. I like the fact that I... I I like the packed bag up in my bedroom that might, I might need to use any any second if someone gives me the call, you know. We're probably both scared of being bored. I think the two things that scare me most are boredom and loneliness. Mm. And, um, you think, and it's, it's that excitement, isn't it, of what's the new... I know I said earlier, so I'm contradicting myself, but as you get older, it's not as exciting. It's just more about the length of time and oh, who am I going to be with and not having Gracie. But this time I'm going shooting in Sweden next. We haven't found our lead man, actually. Hey, hey. Well, you've got my number. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, it's quite a good project too. And it's a really good character. I might, I might have to, um, after this there podcast, call you and say, take a look. <laughs> we'll be back with more chat after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. Can I ask you about um, watching yourself? What's that like? And have you always done it? And do you watch the monitor on set? Uh, again, it very much depends on who I'm working for or with. Some don't like you to go to the monitor, others do. I remember there was um, Jim Sheridan in Dublin years ago. I was only 23, and he'd, he'd, he'd recommended, because I was asking him about how he'd worked with Daniel Day-Lewis as well, and I really admired, and he said, I really believe actors should see exactly what they're doing instead of ever you've got an audition or you're rehearsing. He said, put the camera on the mantelpiece or wherever it is that's at head height, watch what you're doing and watch it back, face yourself and see, is that, is it, are you communicating what you want to communicate? Now, sometimes that helps, but then as I've got older and you get more self-conscious and I think the better you become, the less self-conscious you can be and you know the tricks. Um, some as I've got, there's some things I've done I haven't even watched. I did a I, I remember a Woody Allen movie. And it, I was film I was filming something in the day. I was rehearsing the play. I was with Robert Tiffany's, and then Woody had called to the night before saying the seven pages of dialogue. Um, I've woken up. I've got the wrong person. Can you come and film tomorrow? Um, and it was a scene with Antonio Banderas and Naomi Watts. And I was like, Fuck, how am I going to do? This? I'm already doing two characters. I saw can I can I do it in a different accent so I don't get confused? Because that would be three characters I'm working on. And it was, at the time, you're really proud to work with Woody Allen. Um, I have, but I haven't, and there was, and that, but I've never watched that back. Um, I watch things maybe once. Marcello, I watch uh, along with the public. It was every 
week, there was a build up before the the bin set. So I'd kind of like to see the anticipation and if there was what we used to call the water cooler talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you never watch dailies. You never watch like rushes or anything. Um, if if there's a problem and you and you need to not people aren't understanding what the problem is and say look go and see can you not the, the tone's not similar with everybody we're all we're all in something different <laughs> I don't think we're set in a tone I might ask um, can I see it but usually that takes me out so to be honest I I don't I stay in my head and hope for the best but I'm I'm a bit of a stickler for lighting so I'd rather get it right first. I'm going to go. I might check something. Just can you tap, show me a monitor? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I've not got some big shadow over my face, which doesn't need to be there. And what about you know? You said you've, you're an executive producer on season three, but what as as the leading actor? What mm-hmm. do you feel that you're in charge of? What do you feel that you're above and beyond doing your character? What do you feel that your job is? Um, to set a standard to be grateful knowing that everybody's going to be looking up to you. And if, if you've got a problem, then they're going to have a problem. Uh, work ethic always being the one to say, look, I'm willing to push on. To, <laughs> also, can we have a running lunch? Because we save so many hours. Cause if we all go to our trailers and all eat, we, it slows us down and concentration. I'll always go around and be fair and say to the crew who would like to have a nine hour shooting date rather than the 12 hour date with an hour lunch break. Um, that being prepared so you uh, set an example of always knowing your lines I think it's, as I was younger I look back thinking oh you just have such confidence and winging it and I think it was all to do with insecurity and fear totally thinking it's all going to fail so I might as well just let it fail I think I think I might have had a bit of that attitude which is just totally different now um uh but I think setting set a standard understanding the other people going to them making them feel comfortable knowing what it's like if you're not the lead of the nerves that people can have if they're a day player walking in with a few, um, you know, they've not got that many lines and I can feel their nerves and I just want to go and give them a big hug and go, it's fine, it's fine, come on, let's go over here because you want the scene to be good. And also knowing no scene is a scene if just you're, if you, if you're the only one who's good. I hate that in actors when they're selfish. It's like, well, then wait, what, what do you want to say? You were good in that scene or it was a good scene? Sometimes I feel that uh, day players, because people feel, you know, they can be clock watchers and they're like, oh, come on, you've only got two lines. I think it's the hardest thing sometimes to come in maybe on a Friday afternoon and have four lines at the end of the day when everybody wants to go home. I think that's the hardest thing. Oh, God, the nerves. And you know that they're going to turn the camera on them last and they're going to, it's all going to be rushed. And you think, I don't ever want it to be like that. So it's always having empathy. But again, what I've found, really helps is so that everybody feels part of it i'll put i'll get them to um or i'll ask the director what do you feel about and is it possible to the sound department can we get the music that's in my ears and i'm feeling and and if if that's right for the scene and i blast it onto the set so everyone starts to get in the mood and feel the atmosphere and we're all part of it and it's like come on if you've got one big long steady cam shot that you're going come come don't fuck it up don't fuck it up so everyone's really excited when it, at the end, wow, we did it. That is brilliant. Now, obviously with Marcella, you're in a team with Hans and Nicola, which you trust and, you know, you have you have a dialogue with them. But sometimes we're in situations where, you know, people 
we can rub up against the wrong person or something can happen. How do you deal with with that when there's a clash if a director or a showrunner wants you to play a role in a different way than you've conceived it? Uh, is that something that you would go via your agent with or would you confront that on your own or what? That's a good question. Um, prevention is cure. So you try and sort those things out before you start so you never found, you don't find yourself in a position um, of animosity in on a, on a public forum or stage. That's the last thing you want to happen. And I think you learn that with time, uh, age and experience. Um, I remember also knowing what's, what's acceptable and what isn't. Um, I, I don't really want to go into names and bring up the kind of me too-ish things, but I, if I look back, so many things were inappropriate that just would never, ever be able to happen now. And I remember one director saying, okay, uh, do it English. Do it in your English accent. Okay, now do it American. Now do it English. And literally like a parrot. When we're, and I thought, that's really not how you attempt something. And, and we just kept accepting this until I realized that was really wrong. Or I had one director, he literally licked his fingers because he didn't like one hair sticking out and did this on my hair. Um, I mean, loads of stories of just things that are completely inappropriate. And usually I'll take them to the side and say, that's, you know, that's not really cool, is it? Um, but what's hard, I think, is if someone breaks your attention and you're in such concentration in a certain mood and you know yourself when you get that take and you know you're not going to be able to repeat it. It only happens once and the boom's in shot or which happens and things go wrong or someone's really giving you a different performance off camera to when it turns around then it doesn't make your camera make your performance make sense. Those things annoy me. But I guess it's just acceptance. You breathe through it. Meditation helps. And yeah. make sure we're all on the same page before we even begin, I would say. I um, think also, you know, particularly on location, particularly when you're on location, maybe in a foreign country, a film set can be in quite a lonely place sometimes. Yes. And it's about, for me, about how I, the routine I have, my internal routine that I still find my confidence in or I find myself in that, that I can go to rather than just spin out of control really. Cause sometimes I can. If can I'm you? Feeling, yeah. If I'm feeling vulnerable and sort of in the middle of nowhere or in a foreign land or particularly if I've only just arrived, sometimes, you know, you arrive, you're on set straight away, you're in a character. I mean, I remember doing the walking dead and I was on the film set and I was just, you know, I was bricking it. And I, and I didn't know, I didn't know how to say to somebody, Hey, you know, I'm bricking it here. Can, yeah. you, can you help me out? So I usually just, I mean, basically I just drank loads of coffee. Uh, which <laughs> didn't help at all. Basically so much worse. The elevated heart rate. And I have to watch, I have to, I drink probably on set about eight cups of tea a day and I'm allowed one cup of coffee because it really, a coffee for me is like five Red Bulls. It just then the nervous energy. And I found just sometimes find the ones that you gravitate to, find those that, look at vulnerability as a positive and a strength and um, just say, I'm a bit frightened. What should I do? Is it, uh, is it, is it just nerves? And, and usually as soon as you've committed those first few lines to a film, you go, oh, I've done it now. There we go. Yeah. I've committed. I can breathe. But it's, I think if you didn't have that fear and maybe you wouldn't be driving yourself to be good. And the wonderful thing about our job is that you can never be too good. It's not that you can get become a CEO of a company and then, by the bank. You can't, you can't ever stop being better. No, and I like my nerves. My nerves are, for me, a good indicator that I care. 
Yes. So, you know, I sort of like that. Um, you said um, you said that, you know, because you started at the Oldham Theatre Workshop and you said that the guy who ran it there was quite, quite tough, but it gave you a resilience. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah he was a wonderful man called David Johnson. Um, I was 13 in our school. We had a middle school system where I grew up in Rochdale and um, they didn't class drama as an academic subject. So it was wonderful teacher I had at school called Mr. Rawlins who died a few years later but he, for some reason he saw something in me I was only musical and was in the choir he said no I think you've got a real flair for acting I was like really and um he sent me to this uh, recommended Oldham Theatre workshop which was at that age quite a lot of work so you'd be doing all your um all your school work I'm the daughter of two teachers so that was very important that I got my grades and I was an A student and um, in the evenings, um, they drive me to Oldham, which was 30 minutes drive. And uh, it was 6.45 to 10, three nights a week, and then 10 a.m. until 10 p.m. every Sunday. And it was all improvisation. But his level, he didn't care. You had um, children that were from incredibly poor families and, um, and hard council estates to other kids that went to Manchester Grammar and lived in big mansions in Cheshire um so it was a huge mix uh, of the spectrum um as far as wealth is concerned uh, and, ed- and education when you walked into that room none of that mattered and he was um he was not afraid of swearing would be called you little beep what are you beep 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 whatever beep um and you either were strong enough to deal with that or you'd have certain parents that would come in and say how dare you how can you swear at my child? He's like, great, take your child. We've seen how busy it is in this room, take them. But he was so good because he would just be completely honest and say, I don't believe you. And learning that lesson at a very young age that that's all it's about really is believability. Do I believe that or can I see them acting? And then you're playing, so the improvisation you're using, your English and your vocabulary and not just, if you have to, you're not just saying cup of tea, cup of tea, coming up with the same thing. You're moving, moving, moving. Um, but, and also it was, it was stage. I remember my first ever line was, um, I'm a good girl. I am. And I had to try and do a Cockney accent at age 13 and wear a pair of heels. <laughs> to this day, I still can't walk in big stilettos. I just look like the kids that put their mom's shoes on and <laughs> try and walk. I mean, they were, and they were purple, purple patent. Oh my God. Um, but he was, he, you automatically got an agent, um, when you were there. And I remember going for my first audition, which they'd bring people from London to come up to the Oldham Theatre Workshop because they heard that there were these really well-trained, not very expensive child actors. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was Alan Bleasdale and Michael Palin came up and I had five auditions for that. That was was GBH, wasn't it? GBH, yeah. And my brother joined the Oldham Theatre Workshop because Big Sister did and he ended up doing doing it because he was far cuter than I was. And um, he got all the work before me. I so said, you didn't even want to go, Michael. I can't believe you. <laughs> He's a doctor. He's the original Hovis boy that pushes the bike up the hill. So, that, I mean, I think that's great training. I really do. And it sounded, I just read a little bit about it. It's so great to hear you talk about it because it's really... 
It sounds very exciting and exactly what the, you need walking into a film set because well, it is a nurturing environment, but it's also a workplace. And it was also free. Now, that makes such a big difference. So it was open. There are so many wonderful actors out there. And that's, I think, why I want to take more of the journey of producing because I hate this circle that unless you've done these jobs, you can't get into the industry and they haven't done it. Well, how are they ever meant to get into it? Yeah. And you've got sometimes some of the most wonderful actors as people who, how can you be a good actor if you've not lived? You're telling your stories. And some of these kids that go back to quite hard home lives but would come in and get on a stage and wow, they were so good. And because it got them out of the house, their parents didn't have to pay for it. And if you look what's happened in the lockdown as far as actors or people in the arts are concerned to say retrain and there's no furloughing, my heart just goes out. I've been doing quite a lot of press recently for, for Marcella and been asked that question. I was thinking, well, how can you say that the, the arts is not a job? What, what, what are you listening to? What are you watching when we're all here? And I, I think we need to take care of, of us more. I'd like to go to, I know David Johnson now works in Cheshire and there isn't the Oldham Theatre Workshop as we knew it, but um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a good way to learn about yourself. Even if you don't want to be an actor, just to put yourself in other people's shoes. It'd be good to teach it more at school and get the bully to play the kind person and vice versa. I do think that way of uh, honing your empathetic skills, acting, walking, you know, walking in somebody else's shoes is really important. And I see that a lot, whether you want to be a performer or not, just that imaginative trip is really important for us, I think. Yeah, and for confidence, sometimes we wake up and we really don't want to. You don't want to go to your office job, and you but you've got to put a smile on your face and not say, "Oh, I've got really bad period pains today," or something awful happened yesterday. You've, you've all got to put on the mask, so to speak. Mm. Um, and and so those skills will help anybody throughout their their life. So I think it is a kind of lifelong ambition of mine to try and recreate Oldham Theatre Works, going back to Rochdale or Oldham and, and helping them in the same way that I was helped because. Without a doubt, if it wasn't for that place, there's no way I'd be in the situation that I'm in now. No, I had that too at the Everyman Theatre. I had that the uh, youth theatre there, which was a really important um, period of my life. Can we just talk about theatre? Because I know you know you're a Broadway award-winning actress when uh, when you did Closer and stuff. Is your process different going into a theatre role than it is going into a television and film role? Yeah. Well, because we get to rehearse, which is a joy for me. And now at most sets, you, you're lucky if you get a day, you just get to turn up and action. Um, I try and insist on as much rehearsal as possible. And I offer my services for free, saying so the agents go, oh, you've got them for the next two weeks. They say, no, I'll just, please, can we just rehearse? You don't have to pay me. Um, and to break down a play for three, four months is so exciting. It's like going back to school. Um, uh, but I also know that you have to absolutely adore the character and adore the play because that is difficult. You get, it's fine for the first month and you've got all those nerves getting you through and then, and do it again, and do it again. And sometimes it's not about finding something new because it's entertaining to you that isn't serving the character or the audience. Um, I don't know if I could do a sixth month run again. At the end of that, I was thought, oh, I just, I, I can't do it again. But uh, I did, I used to do theatre every four years and I, and I saw, I saw Sean Mathias, this director I worked with and I said, Oh, 
yeah, it's probably about time. He said, Anna, it's not four years. Do you know it's nearly seven? I mean, we, is it? Is it time to do theatre again? Oh, um, now the idea of it with all our beautiful theatres being closed. Um, I just think it's a time to retrain, isn't it? It's a time when there's no cot. You can't go again. It's from beginning to end. You're, you're, you're playing in sequence. Um, and there's also that wonderful camaraderie, isn't there? Because you're, with your team players, you need them so much. If you're on stage and something's gone wrong and you go, you got, have you got me? Have you got me? Oh God. And that, that adrenaline, it's, it's a, it's a huge rush. I think the fallacy though with the theatre is people think you just do it for those two hours in the night. Whereas I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about it. I mean, I'm Oh my God, I'm the same. It's not, it's a 24 hour job for me when yeah. I'm in the theatre. In fact, I can switch off from my television and film much easier than I can from theatre. Oh, me too. You know how you can do the, the, the affirm- positive affirmations when you wake up and say, well, what am I grateful for? I, I agree with you so much. I remember waking up and you think, Oh, oh, I've got to do it again. How I don't feel in the right frame of mind. I don't, oh my God. Um, and you know that you've got until seven o'clock, but then, because you've got to also change your sleep patterns so that your main energy is ready at seven, but then you come off, you become kind of nocturnal because at 10 o'clock you're pumping and you say, I, I can't go to bed now. I've got all this energy. But then you worry about not sleeping enough. It's all, it goes in a circle. I'm, I'm the same. And Patrick Marvel for Closer used to say to me, oh, um, he said, oh gosh, by month two, you'll be thinking about, what you're shopping when you're on stage by month six I said I'm still not thinking about my goddamn shopping (laughs) am I going to be able to do that big breakdown and again for the the number for that after all that time because otherwise because you don't I think when you know they're paying so much money to come and see you and that's the one experience you you don't want to let one person down so there's even more of a pressure to deliver and serve also, just my, you know, internal clock, I would wake up in the morning, I'd cough and think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do it tonight. <laughs> and then the whole day with me thinking, how am I going to do it? And then I get to the theatre thinking, oh, I'm so tired. I am so tired. Yeah. And then I do a warm up. I do the show and then I wouldn't be able to sleep till four in the morning because I was full of beans. <laughs> me too. Have, <laughs> so you, have, you ever, have you ever done it with a bad back? Oh, I've done it with bad everything. Yeah, I think it was, and that literally, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stand up. I was bent over to this, and thought, well, that, "That's like, how can I play Holly Go Lightly like this?" <laughs> it's meant to be holding my head up and showing off my hat. And there was a chiropractor at the back of the, the world's show must go on, or they call it, and, and there is, it's true, isn't it, Doctor Doctor Theatre? And he'd beat the back and go, and I'd get it on and. Back on we go, and there we are. But the, I know that throat thing. You're thinking, oh, 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 no, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. But again, this time off, the positive affirmation and what do we, what do we draw, and how can we do it, and and the breath. That's I, I always found that was good. I have a trick for theatre. So, where's Broadway? It's the first time I'd ever been on stage, and I was only 22, and I I wanted it to be as naturalistic as possible. So it was like someone coming to what you perform on a film set. But what I couldn't overcome, and I had a brilliant teacher called Patsy Rodenberg, who was next to me every day, brilliant woman. And you take the bigger breath, but it still sounded like I was shouting all the time and I could hear myself. And, and then I thought, well, that's not bloody naturalistic. I'm just aiming my voice to the end, which obviously is technique. But I, I used a trick that I put in um, earplugs. So I could still obviously hear the person next to me, but I couldn't hear my own voice it didn't sound like I was shouting much like when people put headphones on and then do you like the song I love this song it's fantastic this song so 
it worked in that in that kind of vein. That um, is great. I'm going to use that next time. Honestly, it really it it, it it works. I can't believe they don't use it as an exercise for people. That's brilliant. Yeah. Look, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I mean, it's Marcella. I think season three is really exciting, and but things like you know. Butterfly, which I just thought was amazing. The street, so much stuff. But I just wanted to wrap up with, you know, if you could look back at your, looking back at the girl who's starting out into this business, what would you say to her now as yourself in the position you're in now? If you could just talk to Anna when she's just starting out in this business, what what advice would you give her? Um, well, it's ironic because it'll probably be something to do with the job that we did together, but we didn't have many scenes or if any of it. Um, Our mutual friend. Yeah, 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 I loved that. I wish I'd been more prepared for that. I love period dramas and the BBC. And I don't think I probably gave my best, myself my best shot on that one. Um, oh. I, I don't know. I, I, for, for me, I'd never been taught um, an RP accent, a received pronunciation. It was Joan Washington who was um, Richard E. Grant's wife, or maybe still is. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't. I wasn't given the tools and it was such a different world for me. And I was quite intimidated by everybody's experience. And I, I had not done very much. I'd only played this one character in the, with Brookside and not one, I'd done GBH, but the, but the big one and become quite famous and no one really helped me. And I, and I did ask for help. I did say, I think I need a bit of help here. This is not normal. I'm not going, my life isn't normal. And, um, I'd say I should have shouted louder and I should have had better management. I don't think I was looked after very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it was all, about, thank God I've got great parents. Um, and they got, they guided me somewhat, but I'd, I'm now very, very protective of any child actor I work with and make sure that they've been given all the necessary tools to deal with <laughs> quite an odd world. But um, my, I'd, I've, I've kept a lot of my, old beliefs I, I think I've hopefully kept my and held on to my integrity and for what I believe in um and my work ethic has done nothing but grow um just sometimes give yourself a little stroke on the back and know that most of the things you worry about and are anxious about were a waste of time and focus that energy in a very very different way and remember that other people are just as scared as you we've got to talk about it sometimes a bit more which I think we are the whole conversation about mental health now is much easier and keeping that you can never be too kind well on that note thank you very much it's been wonderful to talk to you today Marcella 3 is fantastic as I said I've only seen two episodes can't wait for the rest of it but uh, I'm really looking forward to it very different but god it was good I'll wait till you get to it it gets better and better gets us number 6 because I I didn't want the audience to be frustrated so I got them to do an episode that takes you back of exactly what happens when she came out of the tunnel after slicing her face. And oh. that's you see. Great stuff. Well, it's great work. It really oh, is. As it, again, so I lo- love you. it. Who Am I This Time? is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.